you can use a piece of art as a kind of a vehicle for meditation and that is a beautiful thing and definitely has its place but there is a more objective as opposed to subjective theological meaning um, that was intended by the artist or the patron um, so what i'm trying to do is share that and bring that into the conversation the art historical conversation surrounding the piece how can interacting with the beauty of the ancient world help reveal our own purpose and meaning? Can we learn more about God through the exploration of sacred spaces? In this episode, founder of Vadis Virtual Reality, Amy Giuliano, shares how exploration of the ancient can create a path to the new, and how technology advances can be put to the work of advancing the gospel. It's for evangelization and catechesis. I want to expose more people to these sites and then not just expose them to the sites, but help them to understand the uh, meaning of the sites, the church history, the biblical stories that are painted on the walls, um, doctrines of our faith, the liturgy that's housed within that space. Um, understand it in a deeper way, the faith behind the piece, but that's a big part. When we experience the beautiful, we're brought closer to the divine. This is Living the Call. Amy Giuliano, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The forces of the netherworld have been conspiring <laughs> against us for like the last 48 hours to try to have this, uh, to have this uh, you know, recording, but I'm so glad we finally got to it. Me too. It's, it's good to thank you for your patience and it's good to meet you, albeit virtually, and get to know you a little bit. Uh, my dad is also a deacon, so. Oh yeah, you mentioned that to me on our initial call. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. how is that? Is that the only deacon in your family? Not that that's not enough, but just just him. Uh huh. Just but, him. Uh, huh? It. I remember when I was a kid and he was ordained. Um, mm -hmm. It struck me because I saw. I, well, I, he was really the authority figure in the house, and I saw him prostrate before oh, wow. the altar. And yeah. that was a really striking image to see my authority figure showing yeah. that there was a, a higher authority figure. Yeah. So uh, anyway. you mean during the actual massive consecration when, mm -hmm. when you lay face down that, yeah. you know, I got to tell you, um, you prepare for that moment of ordination as a deacon mm -hmm. and you have this image of what that will be, you know, like, oh, it's going to be so powerful and so amazing. But I equate it to the idea of people telling you about having kids and having kids. Mm -hmm. So they're like two, one thing you can conceive of intellectually, like, oh yeah, I'll have kids. They'll be my own. It'll be, you know, flesh of my flesh. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. And then you have a child and it is all those things intellectually that you imagined, but it's something greater. That's what it was for me being face down. For me, it was in the cathedral of Our Lady of the Angels in LA, but being mm -hmm. face down, like the moment before you're ordained, and that prayer of the bishop over, you know, the, the, the candidates at that point. I mean, I felt all the things I thought I was going to feel, but then it was just so much more than that. It was really powerful. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. How long have you been a deacon? I, I was ordained in 2017, so I'm a, I'm a toddler deacon. Nice, nice. Yeah. What about, what about your dad? I guess I'm a toddler. I'm almost five. I'm almost in preschool. So oh, what, what, uh, what about your dad? He just came up on 20 years. Yeah, oh, wow. so he, he God was bless him. Oh, yeah, older than you when he uh, first was ordained. Mm -hmm. 
So that's another interesting thing, Amy. And I know that this conversation will be far flung, but didn't expect it to start out on the diaconate. But nevertheless, <laughs> let's go in that direction. The thing about um, the diaconate, which is really interesting, there's actually a, um, a recent study that came out from CARA, uh, the Christian Applied Research Sciences or whatever it stands for. But mm-hmm. basically, the, the, one of the groups that studies this, I think it was at Georgetown, that it was like a state of the state of the American diaconate and clergy. And one of the things that um, that it brought to mind in the U.S. is how how much older the diaconate is in the U.S. than other parts of the world. Specifically, so I, I entered the formation program at 38, I think I was, right? Okay. And the very first words that the formator said to myself and my wife, literally before hello, it was like, mm-hmm. not even hello, it was like, wow, you're young. And it... <laughs> And it really, really struck me because I'm coming into this thinking, well, I know the universal law of the church is that a permanent deacon can't be any younger than 35 at the point of ordination can't be. So that means you could have entered the program like our program was five years. You could have entered at 30 and then been ordained at 35. And here I am, 38 and just coming into a five year program. And the very first things are like, wow, you're really, really young. And but looking at this data, um, I think something like. 80%, 80%, maybe 82% of all the deacons in the United States in the United States are 50 or older. So oh, 80% of all of them. Something like 65 or 70% of them are older than like 60. So it is like a really aging group. And I, I don't know why that is because there's nothing about the church's law that says it needs to be. Right, right. That is interesting. I, I guess I didn't realize the, I didn't know the data behind it, but I did have that impression. Um but yeah, and the the formation period is quite long. I was I remember being surprised by that. It's it depends uh, on the long. it depends on the diocese, but it can be pretty long. In LA, it's five years. Some other places, it's three. It's between three and five years. Um, you oh, know, okay, usually, so it caps but, off at five. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, that's intensive. Nothing like the kind of uh, you know academic and formation career you've had, though. You've been like, <laughs> where have you not been? I mean, well, you've been so in actually, France and Rome and Yale and all these different places. <laughs> so the, the program, my theology degree from Rome, that uh, was fun because I was thinking you were mentioning the diaconate formation and the uh, degree that I have from Rome is um, I, I took that, the, all of my classes were with seminarians, that that is the degree that on their road to the priesthood. Oh, <laughs> so wow, I have cool. something of a partial priestly <laughs> I mean anyway I'm kidding about it but yeah I, I was good friends with a lot of seminarians it's it's um, the STB the Bachelorate sure. in Sacred Theology yeah um, it's it's something that they all go through on their longer path to the priesthood longer than the diaconate um, but not by by much I mean I guess it they have the philosophy and then theology and that's pretty much what I did so I I needed the theology uh degree and in order to get into that I had to uh, get my philosophy degree as well so that's the degree I did in France was philosophy and that was um, beautiful because I lived at a monastery and studied oh, wow. philosophy at what the kind same of monastery um, it was kind of it was a contemplative place it was a contemplative religious community French religious community and they taught uh, their novices philosophy. And then there was a certain group of lay people who were welcomed in mm-hmm. and um, we got to participate in the liturgy of the hours with them and then their study and some of their manual labor. So 
That was a good experience. I remember thinking I that I had, well, I had studied French. My husband is French. <laughs> so now French I isn't from France. All the time. Well, his, so his parents moved here just a couple years uh, before he was born. Um, and so, I mean, French is his first language. And so I get the practice there. But when yeah. I first moved over to France after college to get the degree in philosophy, I thought that I spoke it pretty well. And then I arrived. <laughs> and um, I remember I was in adoration at the monastery. And I was just telling Jesus, like, I think you're the only one who understands what I'm saying. <laughs> 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 so it was, a, it was a beautiful way to enter into the silence. Sure. Uh, that full immersion, though, you pretty pretty quickly you, you get a hang of thing, the hang of for things. sure. Well, I mean, imagine imagine coming to the states for the first time and like you've studied English out of a book, or <laughs> or worse, maybe in some you know in some British environment, and you come to the U.S. and you're going to quickly discover you may actually know the language better than they do. Frankly, in some cases, who knows? But mm -hmm. it, conversationally, languages tend to just radically you know differ. Mm -hmm. from what the kind of source material is. The idea of doing philosophy before theology, of course, is nothing new, and that's how the formation is for men who are going into the priesthood or the diaconate, but mm -hmm. um, definitely doesn't have to be the case for um, in, a, in a lay setting. But going doing monastic and then having these experiences in Europe, is that something you had designed? Like, did you imagine you would be doing exactly that? Was that your path the whole time, or was it a series of happy accidents that got you all this incredible exposure to uh, to the to that formation sure so I am also an Italian citizen and my grandma when I was little I I grown up in the US though and when I was little my grandma would tell me in Italian like you have to eat your vegetables so that you get big so that you go to Rome <laughs> like that is the point of growing up <laughs> so it was kind of you know, from my youth embedded in deep within me that I would, I would go to Rome. So uh, I actually decided to study theology because I, for a long time, was pretty seriously thinking about re entering religious life. And I thought, um, why not take the years when I'm discerning to, I just wanted to get to know God better. And I thought that drawing close to him intellectually as well as with my heart like you know that we're body mind and spirit and and that I could um, draw near to him in several different ways and that intellectually speaking it would be a good way to form myself to get to know him better so that that would serve me for what I thought was going to be a lifelong um, stay in a <laughs> a, a convent <laughs> Did you did you so, have a mind? Did you have a thought as to what kind of religious order or a particular spirituality at that time? Uh, contemplative, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh wow, yeah. okay. So no, now I'm married, and God's plans were different. And uh, yeah. but I I don't I don't at all regret my time in Rome. I think that it helped. Um, it it awakened my desire to catechize through beauty. I I, I think that. Um, I was so impressed by the sanctity of some of the people I met there and so goodness. I was so impressed by the truth that I was learning in the classroom and I was just taken aback by the, the beauty of sacred art and the grandeur of the spaces, especially all over Europe, um, really 
my dad, when I was little, took us to Istanbul and we saw Hagia Sophia and just the oh, yeah. it's feeling so small in a grand sacred space. Um, so truth, goodness, and beauty in Rome. I met all those three things and it, it caused, uh, it, it helped me discover my own vocation. Yeah. I confess that the reason, because I, you know, I reached out to you about being on the show, and that's not to suggest I haven't done that before. I have, but you know, I've been doing the show for a little bit now, where I'll be referred guests or guests will recommend other guests, and so I haven't had to just reach out randomly. Not certainly not as out of necessity, but I reached out to you specifically, and I'll confess why. A couple reasons. Number one is that. Um, I just had a contributor to the Benedict XVI Institute on the show, and I kind of started discovering more about that institute, and you're a, a fellow there. That was one reason. But the second one was the fact that I really dig, like, duality. And, you know, this guest that I'd had before, uh, Anthony Santella, had this whole, you know, right brain, left brain thing going, right? He was a, a incredibly accomplished sculptor and artist and at the same time was a phd computer scientist and a cancer researcher uh, and i was oh like goodness. i just i just Amazing. i love that right i was like yeah. i love that idea but mm-hmm. you have this kind of um sort of ancient with technology thing right where mm-hmm. and then of course you're a dual citizen there's you got duality all throughout but i love the idea of the you know this combination of in a real sense, ever ancient, ever new, right? Because mm-hmm. that's at least some variation of what I imagine you're trying to bring to the world with your, certainly with your VR initiative, but maybe other ways that you look at things, right? This idea of kind of bringing that truth, good and good, goodness and beauty to the world and doing it in ways that are available in your time and place. So I, I really dig that kind of ancient plus technology thing. And that's really the reason why I wanted to invite you on the show and, and learn more about you. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I mean, that strikes a chord with me. Um, Beauty ever ancient, ever new. So, yeah, what I'm trying to do is harness brand new, innovative digital technologies. My part of my background is in photography, uh, laser scanning, VR tech. um, And what I'm trying to do is uh, combine that with my degrees in art history and theology in order to just bring more of our really rich artistic patrimony within the church, that beauty of our patrimony out to as many people as possible. And we have the technology that allows us to do that. It's just pretty amazing. We're living yeah. it. I, I think that as you asked me about what was my plan going into Rome and, and studying theology and whatnot, and it really was religious life at the, at the outset. Um, But I could not have imagined at the time that I started studying theology that the technology would develop to allow me to enter into the vocation that I've entered into. That's what I mean. Of course it does. Yeah, it makes total sense. And it's also, I can't help but remark about just the extraordinary good humor of God in the sense that, you know, here you are discerning a contemplative life of prayer in some, you know, ancient environs somewhere, right? Tucked in, a, praying for the good of the world. And it's an, a, an amazing vocation for those who have it. But now you're a VR, like entrepreneur and startup <laughs> CEO. Like there could sure. not be a wider <laughs> gulf between those two things that I can think of. And the cool part is that, again, that technology didn't exist at the time that I was discerning. But I should, I guess, for your listeners, um, I'm just cognizant of the fact that I forgot to 
go into my little spiel about what I do. I could give it to you in two sentences. It's your show. It's your show. <laughs> so basically, I founded a company called Vadis VR. It's um, Vadis from Domine Quo Vadis, Lord, where are you going? Where are you and going? I create uh, virtual tours of the church's artistic patrimony around the world. Um, so I've been in Jerusalem and all around Rome and Ravenna, London and the U.S. Um, and the tours are Im- embedded with a guided tour. So little educational interactive hotspots that I create um, that give you a tour of the space so that you're coming to understand the theological meaning of sacred art and architecture as you feel like you're walking through it. So I was just out in California, so I was out your way, uh, drove up the coast and digitized eight of the California missions. Oh, wow, uh, that's cool. Eight of the ones that were founded by St. Junipero Serra. So that was one of my recent projects. One of my favorite projects was in Jerusalem. So I've been all over, um, but the uh, basically I have three aims with creating the tours. The first is to provide access. The second is to, um, it's educational. And the third is for uh, cultural heritage preservation. So in, tor- in terms of access, um, there are so many people who, won't be exposed to the church's artistic patrimony abroad. A lot of um, sacred art is right now, I mean, especially with COVID, um, there's just lack of access to these sites. So I'm trying to provide access and unprecedented access where you feel like you're actually walking through as opposed to a 2D image where, I don't know, I just think of the example of the Mona Lisa. When I saw it in person, I realized how tiny it is. You don't get a sense of grandeur or scale when you're seeing an image in a textbook, you know, or something like that. Um, And video viewing is great. And I I am a video editor. I do embed videos into the tours, but it is a bit more passive. So this technology lets you feel like you're walking through the space. Um, And then in terms of uh, education, it's for evangelization and catechesis. I want to expose more people to these sites and then not just expose them to the sites, but help them to understand the um, meaning of the sites, the church history, the biblical stories that are painted on the walls, um, doctrines of our faith, the liturgy that's housed within that space, um, understand it in a deeper way. And finally, uh, cultural heritage preservation. So I do, when I'm on site, I'll do laser scanning that creates a a 3D model of the um, archaeological site or church, whatever it may be. Uh, And then all of the precise 3D measurements of that space are digitized, and I can save them offline with that 3D model. I give um, that information to the site caretakers, and it's helpful for cultural heritage preservation, restorationists, architects can use that information. Um, it's part of the reason I was focusing on the California missions because some of them were vandalized. One was put down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, those are the three main aims of what I'm trying to do. St. Junipero Serra has uh, roused some emotion, most of it very ill-informed and ill-directed, but nevertheless, uh, it's caused a lot of uh, unfortunate things out here with some of those, uh, those mission churches. Sure. Yeah. I mean, part of it that's, uh, unfortunate is that um, native art is getting destroyed. I mean, yeah. it's like if you burn down it, that that's a lot of the contributions to that space um, 
you know, anyway, it's, it is a long and difficult history. So I see what you mean, but, but my, a little bit of the backstory, if you're, if you're um, interested in terms of why, how I got to making these type of tours. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, one thing I I wanted to touch on though, and reflect on just before we move on to that is that, you know, when you and I first spoke, and this was months ago, but when you and I first spoke, um, you explained, you know, kind of the Genesis story for Vadis and this idea that when you came back to the States, you had been, you know, kind of really frustrated in a way by the, by not being able to communicate to your students, um, uh, for your like different, you know, speaking presentations and whatnot. Um, you weren't able to convey to them exactly the fullness of what it meant to be in these historic sites. Right. So I, I, like I took that as in a very entrepreneurial sense as a problem that has like, you know, there's an opportunity around a problem. You create a product to solve that. So it's like super entrepreneurial. The fact that you kind of hit on that problem. But the thing that most impressed me from our initial conversation was this notion that it was one thing and you've already said it, right? So like access education and also um, preservation of this, right? Historically, but, but kind of contained in those three is the idea of formation too, because the way you explained it to me, at least this is what I heard was that, you know, when you walk somebody as a tour guide, which I, which you were right at one point, Mm -hmm. you walk somebody as a tour guide through something you can give them the academic part of it, which is, here's this, this is the material, here's when it was made, here's who utilized it, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can give them the stuff behind it, right? The why. Why is a baptismal font here, period? Why are confessionals on the outside? Why is the altar shaped in this particular way? What happens at the altar? And all of these kind of like, you know, real theological formation around the exploration of these sacred spaces. And I was like, wow, that's really cool because it's, for me, it's beyond... um, it's beyond education and catechesis in so much as it helps to form and it helps to mm-hmm. you know bring people closer to the heart of the faith. And so I thought that was super, you know, interesting as a motivation for doing this. Yeah, so what I found when I was studying in Rome, so I was I was a student there, but I was working as a, an art historical guide and I found that the the people who were coming to me for tours at, were from varied backgrounds. Many of them had not darkened the door of a church in a long time. Many sure. of them were not religious. And they, you know, we talked about it. They weren't afraid to say that they, and I, you know, I'm whoever wants to, to come and hear about it, I'm so happy to, to, to show them around. And what I found though, is that I, first of all, I could take, I could take pretty much any subject I was learning at the Angelico, the Dominican Pontifical University where I studied. I could take any subject I was learning about and the living classroom of Rome's churches just opened up every single one of those subjects. I mean, whether it's church history, liturgy, doctrines of the faith, biblical stories, um, lives of the saints that are buried right there and their spiritualities and charisms. Uh, You could talk about all of those things. And I was just, I think what I was most impressed by was this open and captive audience eager to listen. And these were not necessarily religious people, um, but they saw I was passionate about it and they learned a lot. And in front of um, cultural riches and beauty, really, I think it's beautiful things that are, you know, you go in front of them and they're attractive, they're they're ancient, they're, um, and they have such rich meaning. And if I can open up that meaning to the people, um, then 
that they seem to approach it really with their walls down. It's not like, um, I think Bishop Barron sometimes talks about this sort of thing these days, the way of beauty, um, how in a world of moral relativism, mm-hmm. going going at everything by means of the truth and talking about what's true or not true doesn't always resonate with people. And you can't always... Um, it's a good point. Yeah. So you can't always reach them that way. So I think that beauty is a way to reach people more so with their walls down and just interest in um, culture and uh, cultural heritage. So, and we have such richness there. And what I, I guess what I found with being a guide, some of the other guides, I would rub shoulders with them and um, God love them. <laughs> However, a lot of people were guiding people through the city and talking about the art and architecture through an, some type of ideological lens. Um, yeah. And so I would hear, for example, we'd go in front of the Pieta and I'd be one of a few groups who were you know, explaining something about it. And there were people who would kind of ignore some of the, the key aspects to un- actually understand what the Pieta means. Um, and they would talk about maybe like, conjectures surrounding Michelangelo's sexuality or, you know, things that were really peripheral to the meaning of, and the power of that piece and what it mm. is. So that type of thing, either an ideological bent or maybe an anti-Catholic uh, bent or even some historians and art historians or archaeologists who don't, they think faith, theology, that's not my field And so I'm not going to, I'll go into the facts about this work, um, maybe the, when it was made and some interesting anecdotes about the history of the piece and whatnot, but they don't want to touch the faith behind the piece. But that's a big part. Which is the, and and frankly, I would say it's the more interesting part. I wonder, you know, do you have any thoughts on, um, I know you're not a psychologist, but I'll ask you anyway. What, what do you, My mom do you have, is. Oh, there you go. Well, ask mom. Grab her. Uh, no, but what I was like, what is the driver, do you think, for folks like that? Which, you know, look, there's a lot of tendency for people maybe in very advanced, uh, who had very advanced academic degrees or spend their lives in academia or other places, not just them, but but it, it tends to have a, a good substantial streak in those in those sectors. But were they the tacking on of things or to your, you know, to use your term, kind of like the peripheral or ancillary stuff ends up becoming, it supersedes what the thing is about. Is it is it because they want to put like their stamp on it? So this is this now becomes something you remember of me that I added to this work. Like, what's the driver behind that? Because I would think it would be amazing to explain. You know, well, here's what you know the motivation of the artist or what it might mean in the context of the religion that it's part of. You know, the patrimony of or a thousand different ways that have nothing to do with me or how I view it. You, you, you see, what I'm saying like, what what do you think drives people? to sort of layer in those, uh, those accretions. Sure. You know, I'm not sure, but it is the reason why I went after my theology degree in Rome and got an art history degree at Yale. I wanted to, I did also train in some tech uh, on the side when I was at Yale, but my main degree is in art history for Yale. And I wanted to get a degree from a reputable 
institution where I would be taken seriously um, as I explained art history and, ex and really had studied it from, um, again, a reputable place where people would, they would understand that I have a background in both yeah. theology and art history, and I can bring these two worlds together um, with academic precision and with uh, trusted scholarship. Sure. <laughs> it's not just my opinion or some type of... Um, I, I think that... So there's... A, I should say there's a difference between... Um, you can use a piece of art as a kind of a vehicle for meditation. Like you could meditate with a piece of art. And that is a beautiful thing and definitely has its place. But there um, is a more objective, as opposed to subjective, there's a, that objective theological meaning um, that was intended by the artist or the patron at the time, historically speaking. Um, so what I'm trying to do is uh, share that and bring that into the conversation, the art historical conversation surrounding the piece by bringing my background in uh, Catholic theology to the to the. I would guess that the combination of art history and theology is relatively rare. Is that your experience? Um, yes. <laughs> do you yeah. think Do you think that there's tension in a modern sense? Do you think there's tension between those two disciplines to where you wouldn't find them often in the same person? Is that why? So. Hmm. I'm trying to think why you don't see it more often. My uneducated thought would just be that, like, if I'm into art, maybe I'm by temperament someone who wants to, and I'm just making this up, but I want to push boundaries. I want to do invent new things. And I might view theology as um, something that holds back those impulses. I might have a, frankly, I might not be well formed and think that theology means I repress my artistic tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so therefore you might be, you might be hard pressed to find those two things in the same person. That's my uneducated guess. I see. I can definitely see it that way. I would personally say that in, within academia, there's such a, you, you focus on one thing and you start, I mean, by the time you get to your PhD dissertation, you're writing on something so specific especially in the humanities. I mean, well, I guess in all fields, but my experience has been within the humanities. It's so specific that sometimes only you, you're pretty much the expert on it. <laughs> so I think what people tend to do is um, focus so sharply in on uh, their field and become mm. an expert in their field that there are fewer opportunities for interdisciplinary learning. And that's not quite, unfortunately, it's not quite as encouraged within academia. You're expected to specialize. Hmm. Yeah, that's Does interesting. That, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know I mean? Yeah. I'm sure, look, you, you have a much more educated perspective than I do on that. Uh, I'm just, I, I just haven't, I've never run into someone like you. So, you know, and that's not to say I should, but I'm just saying it seems to me like a relatively rare combination of things. But I would say if any of your listeners are really interested in scholars who have that kind of unique combination my personal favorites uh who are alive today um monsignor timothy verdon hmm. v-e-r-d-o-n so he's he 
lives out in Florence, but he got his PhD at Yale, art history, and he's a priest. Um, he actually, if I'm getting this correct, he, so he was a Benedictine, mm -hmm. and I think someone found his art history thesis and really? told him, no, you have to, you have to be out in the world. <laughs> oh, wow. Go be a parish priest. And um, so he works in Florence and heads up one of their museums. Oh, wow. He's excellent. Yeah, I also sure. really like a lot of your listeners may have heard of um, Dr. Elizabeth Lev. Mm. She was my teacher in Rome and then later became my friend. And um, she does excellent work kind of combining uh, the two fields. Yeah. I had, um, Lawan Glasscock on the show. She's the executive director of the Christ Christians in the visual arts. And oh, she's, she's the first Catholic executive director of that organization. They've all, I guess it's been Protestant Christian prior to this. She mentioned mm -hmm. a lot of similar names. I have to go back and listen to that episode to see if it was some of those, but, um, oh, but yeah, there's, um, there's a number I'm sure of those players. It just seems to me that it probably isn't the the sort of predominance are there among the, the just curious, but out of the different sites that, and you have experience with so many of these like sacred spaces, but is there one that you think about that particularly or, you know, in a special way kind of, you know, communicates all of this, you know, theology and all this sort of additional stuff in a way that people kind of get it more easily. Do you know what I mean? Like a, a particularly effective um, sacred space to that end of education or formation? One that I've per personally covered. Oh, I see. I think one of my favorites is Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Mm. It was one of the earlier ones that I covered in Rome. And you just, there, it, there's such richness there. You have St. Catherine of Siena buried under the altar. You have wow. Cajetan buried in the back. You have uh, Blessed Frau Angelico, and he's one of my favorite saints, patron, uh, or not a saint, I, I shouldn't say that, uh, but patron of artists. Mm -hmm. uh, he's buried there. There's um, a statue of Cristo Redentore, so Christ the Redeemer, sure. by Michelangelo, right there. Wow. Um, there's a chapel with these beautifully preserved um, frescoes of depicting the Summa, and um, it's there's Thomas Aquinas, and you have his, the Summa Contragentiles, I should say, not the Summa. Theologica, Theologica yeah. But, um, so, he's depicted there. Anyway, it's it's just such a rich space, and it's huge, and you have attached to it the room where Catherine uh, passed away, St. Mm. Catherine of Siena. Um, so, that was one of the early sites that I covered, and I find it to be very rich in terms of, you can learn a lot about the church's liturgy by being in that space, you can learn a lot about um, a lot of different saints who are just big hitters and um, <laughs> their spiritualities. And so I love that place. It's it, it was one of my favorite churches in Rome when I lived there. I used to go there all the time. <laughs> but I think uh, back to the the point about um, about tour guides and people going into art history, but not but shying away from theology and whatnot. Um, for whatever reason, that's just a fact that exists in Rome. And so when I, after I got my degree in Rome, I came back to the States and I still teach uh, as an adjunct professor just on the side. Um, in your spare time. I teach, art his yeah. <laughs> I teach art history and Catholic studies. And so um, 
what I noticed with my students is that I really wanted to bring the tours that I used to give in person back to my students. And I knew that, first of all, at the time that I founded Bodice VR, it was 2018, and 2%, that year, 2% of U.S. Uh, college students were studying abroad wow. for, the, for that year. And I know that nowadays it's much, you know, lower than that. Um, and I knew that, first of all, so many students would just never see these sites. And some of my Catholic students told me that they, they kind of saw the Catholic Church as their parish, and they didn't, they didn't quite have that universality and that, that mm. wide view true. of the church and what it is. It's true. Um, and then some of my other students, it, maybe they had been to Rome. Maybe they did have the opportunity to go. Um, but maybe they didn't have, I don't want to say it, they didn't have a good tour guide. But they might have had someone who really didn't focus on kind of the core meaning of these sites and the stories of the, the, I mean, you can't go through St. Peter's and not talk about St. Peter who died there, probably looking at that obelisk that's standing in the middle of the square. That's crazy. That was standing in the middle of Nero's circus when a circus is just a racetrack. It's kind of an oblong racetrack. But where he, he died might have been the last thing he laid eyes on. And so to, anyway, to miss certain major things about the city in that way, it's just a poverty. So that's what I was trying to bring some of these back to people, allow them to have this unprecedented access to really feel like they were actually walking through the place and exploring. And um, I have, I printed out an article just to, in preparation for this, where I had a few quotes from my students, but one of them talked about how she could stand, when she was going through the tours, she could stand in certain places that she, she knew if she actually went in person, she would be rushed through. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Um, she but she could, so she could basically rest in a particular place and kind of experience it for a longer period of time. Yeah, it may explore it. it yeah, it, she says uh, right. It might not be part oh, of the. Okay. I was going to say it's like it's like one of those spots where the tour guide doesn't think it's part of the big. It's a big part of the attraction, but to a few people, it might be really interesting, and they might want to actually stare at that thing for a little while and understand it better. I totally get that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I used to. So with this particular class, it was fun. I gave them uh, treasure hunts through the tours. So I I do video editing and uh anyway that's so i put all these little videos and fun interactive elements so that you get a guided tour as you go through um and let's see she says this is carrie she was a social work major this is her quote she says exploring these sites allow our readings and videos to come alive right before my eyes after reading about different architectural features and a specific artwork for the time I get to go into the sites and see them to better understand. In, in addition, it allows me to walk through and take my time to look at, at and appreciate everything that the site has to offer without the time constraint that comes with travel. Yeah, that's true. That's a really practical <laughs> that observation. That, that happens all the time. You know, people got to get you through the thing and, you know, there's 50 people in a group and you got to get the whole group from one to the next. And uh, so, yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's a really practical benefit. You know, the other thing that I think about, Amy, I don't know if you've had this thought, but... Um, you probably have in your spare time. I keep joking because, of course, art historian, <laughs> professor, virtual reality startup founder, video producer. Yeah, when you find the time, I have no idea. But the thought that I had was this. Obviously, the idea of even like start with your tour stuff in Europe. 
people coming in, you said not necessarily well-formed, maybe not even necessarily Christian, or in, and maybe in some cases even anti-the you know, the church or whatever, but nevertheless they're there and they're open. So that's really good. That's a form of evangelization. But here's the thing. You know, God's got this crazy sense of humor, as we already talked about. What if, like, what you're doing right now in these, you know, focusing on these churches and these incredible sacred spaces that sadly, if you look at demographic information, especially throughout Europe, are increasingly less populated for liturgical reasons? That's just the reality. There's just less people going Mm -hmm. to Mass. But what if those increasingly empty spaces in Europe could actually be one of the reasons why we have fuller churches in other parts of the world? Like, wouldn't that be like that a be crazy good. irony? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I'm hoping to do is my real passion lies in catechizing through beauty. Mm. And I think that personally speaking, um, a masterpiece of art is something that kind of lingers in your mind and revisits you in quiet moments and really pushes you to think it um, haunts you a little bit. So it's the type of thing that, you know, it might be beautiful, it might be masterfully executed, but that doesn't, that's not the only criterion for it being a real masterpiece. I think a masterpiece is something that can um, raise your soul and your intellect uh, kind of out of a state of, comfortable self-assurance and into a state of wonder and awe. I think so often, even with, um, so with some people I present to and, and do, you know, do these tours with, they, it is, it is a Catholic audience. And I think for us as uh, faithful people, there's, we we tend to become very familiar with uh, certain pieces of art um, or our churches and, you know, we need to kind of shake that up and become defamiliarized and kind of be unnerved by like the strangeness and amazing, just unnerved by wonder and awe and in front of the beauty of the mysteries of our faith. And I think that certain pieces of art can really get you there, like shake you up to, to, to help you see, um, yeah, the, the mysteries and, and have them really strike you anew and wonder at them afresh. And um, I was just, uh, I talked to you yesterday about the Pieta. And I think that's that's one of the pieces I used to show people as I was going through the city. Um, and that is a piece, a masterpiece it is. <laughs> that, that can linger in your mind. And I think we, we do become so familiar with it because everybody knows what it looks like. But there's such theological depth and richness in that piece. And um, that's just one example of, of many, you know, Christian masterpieces that help us understand the faith. It is, and it does in, in so many ways, to your point. But with that particular um, masterpiece in mind, like for me, what the Pietà does also is because it's so finely crafted, because it's so in- incredibly intricately made with such love and beauty that you can kind of sense it behind just by looking at it, it kind of harkens you back to the idea of creation to begin with, right? And the thought that if man can do this, 
oriented the right way with the right amount of love in his heart and kind of, you know, intellect in his brain, you know, imagine what, you know, the creator himself can do. And it's sort of like, you know, when you see a creation, you imagine the creator of that creation, right? And, and because it's so otherworldly and it's such another level, it kind of raises your game and goes, wow, this is like, if this is possible, what else could be possible? And it kind of orients you up, which is a good thing, right, from my mind. Mm-hmm. So in particular, I, can, I could see that, you know, with that particular piece. You know, sometimes for me, too, like, I was going to ask you if there was one particular sacred space that, like, if you could just die in, that would be the one, right? So maybe think about that in the back of your mind for a second. But for me, some of the most impactful um, sacred spaces have been ones that also tell the story, right? Like you said, they have this greater kind of story that's woven into them. I'll give you two examples really quick. One of them, which you'll know, the other one we probably won't know. So one that you'll know is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? And oh, yes. which is an extraordinary <laughs> sacred space. I had the good fortune of actually being there with uh, Bishop um, Robert Vasha from, uh, I think, is it Santa Rosa? Mm-hmm. Or up, up somewhere near in the Northern California area. But he was sort of the, the chaplain of this tour, and um, he celebrated Mass. And at the moment of the elevation, right after the consecration at the elevation of the host, he comes out of the tomb, right, holding so that the people there can see, oh, because wow. otherwise you can't see. So it was a very practical yeah. reason why he's coming out. But of course, the idea of the Eucharist coming from the tomb was like, just yeah. forget it, right? So it was like amazing. so <laughs> amazing. And then the other one yeah. is um, a little tiny chapel at a monastery here in California called St. Andrew's Abbey, where my brother happens to be a priest monk there. He's a Benedictine. And, um, and the, uh, the chapel's called uh, the Annunciation Chapel. And it's this little tiny, like, there's a whole story how it got built. It was like the randomest thing. But it's this tiny space that was done in, like, somebody read every document from the Second Vatican Council, interpreted them properly, and then designed a building. That's how I interpret it. So it is very new in a sense where maybe some people who are more traditionally minded, they may scoff at it or whatever. It's very new in design. But the way that it's built is with the deepest of sacramental and theological understanding. As an example, like every entrance, it's almost like a hexagon in a way. Every entrance, Mm -hmm. when you walk into this building, you go through a confessional. The confessional is the first step into the building. So like, you know, confession, the sacrament of confession is featured very prominently. There's this almost like spiraling sense as you enter leading down to where the congregation is, and they sit in this kind of semi sort of round formation. On one side is the altar. On the other side is the ambo, right? So liturgy of the word, liturgy of the Eucharist. In the center, Mm -hmm. dangling from the ceiling in the center of the entire building is the tabernacle. I mean, so it was like, and it's so, it's not done with like precious materials or it's not 2000 years old, but it's done in such a way that it tells a story well beyond its material. And like those places really move me, you know what I mean? Because you can see and you can Mm -hmm. feel the maker behind them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I really love what you just said about the Holy Sepulchre. I was just, I have to give a talk in a week or so, yeah, a week, on early Christian baptismal imagery. Mm. And I was just researching a site where the baptismal font, it is a, it is a sarcophagus. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you step into yeah. it, 
and it's like that that death being buried um, into christ absolutely yeah yeah yeah. wow (laughs) um so the the different levels of for example one of the churches that came to mind when you said um what would you like to die in (laughs) it's a uh church with a beautiful um it's a blue ground this deep navy blue ground mosaic uh, ceiling with these stars all over the place i made a, a tour of it um it's in ravenna and there's this sense of this is the heavens this you know this blue ground background with the stars um it's the site where the cosmos the the heavenly realm has come to hover over earth because on the altar that's where heaven and earth are going to be that's beautiful and it always makes me think of that and so that is one place but to what you um said about so this is the place where your brother is currently. yeah yeah saint andrew's abbey in Valermo, California. Wow. Well, I'll have to I'll have to visit. Yeah. I'll send, because that sounds. I'll send. I'll add the. Sounds very interesting. I'll add a link in the show notes to this episode so people can check it out. But it's just, and it's just this little kind of nothing desert little chapel. But whoever did it, like, knew what they were doing at that moment, at that time and place. So you just kind of triggered that that thought. Yeah. The over the entrance to some of the medieval cathedrals, you'll see these beautiful the, the tympanum. Um, where Christ is sitting in judgment. And uh, I really like the the one in, from Chartres. In, it's outside of Paris. Um, so it's interesting. There are three main portals to the church. And on the left-hand portal, you see Christ before time, outside of time. Christ, the, the word creating through, through which all things were made. Um, so he's creating and separating um, the different spheres, and it's very interesting. And then on the other side, you see the right-hand side, that portal, you see him um, sitting in Mary's lap, and underneath is the nativity scene, so it's Christ within time. Wow. Um, and then in the middle, uh, you see Christ at the end of time, Christ coming in judgment. And his little footstool sticks out. It's a, it's a sculpture <laughs> on the, the facade there. And his his footstool sticks out, and it's like the uh, the earth is his the heavens are his throne, and the earth is his footstool. Oh, yeah. And he's breaking. You don't actually see the last judgment, but you see him um, in this mandorla. It's a it's the Italian word for almond, but this almond shaped halo. So it's this it's signifying the breakthrough of eternity into time. Um, and I love that church because. It kind of the whole facade acts as a sundial because you have these very uh, uh, high relief sculptures. So as the sun passes, the, the shadows can tell you the time. There's actually there is a sundial on the facade. <laughs> anyway, it's very interesting a meditation on time and eternity. And uh, like what you said with the confessionals, like um, there's this deep meaning behind why you would have to enter through that space to get into the church. Uh, Christ in judgment. Some of the medieval cathedrals, he'll appear over the doors holding up his wounds. And it's not, I had read in some uh, art history commentaries, it's saying, oh, he's showing you like, look what you did to me. <laughs> and it's not, it's not no. that, it's not that. It's um, through these wounds, enter in and be Well, it's, a, it's Isaiah, healed. but you know, by his wounds, you were healed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, 
it's interesting also to in the that liminal space between the secular profane world and the sacred space just as you're entering into the church to think about uh, you know where is the state of my soul so some of those last judgment scenes you'll see the saved and the damned on the right and left hand mm. sides and they'll be totally separated so you're thinking as you're entering which side am I yeah. on and am I living in a Which by the way, those yeah. liminal spaces, deeply Catholic theological um, principles that you can find, including, you know, the theological principle of purgatory, right? This kind of like preparation mm-hmm. to enter the fully sacred, this purgation, right? Of like letting go of the, the profane, the secular, the everyday, the pedestrian, whatever, and about to enter into this kind of sacred moment that requires for most people, including like 99% of everyone, this the, some moment of transition, right? I mean, to be able to to really appreciate that kind of thing. And the reality of it is, is just in general, certainly in American culture, we don't have that, right? We have these like instant transitions from one thing to the next, but those 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 spaces, those liminal spaces, like there's a reason for them, right? That that is right. deeply spiritually important that we, I, I can't like even think of an example of, I mean, maybe like for a, a professional sporting arena, like the, the, the tunnels to enter it, and maybe there's some moment where the athletes kind of like psych themselves up, but it's always toward an end that's not necessarily, you know, higher ground, but but there's really not that many examples that I can think of. It, it just seems like a lost gift. Yeah, I see what you mean. You know what it reminds me of? Um, I had mentioned Timothy Verdon, the art historian who's a priest out in Florence. It's not really, it's not a liminal space, but he talked about how to, I met with him years back and he was talking about how to enter into looking at a piece of sacred art and he said um, that you have to begin with silence and then really have a deep understanding of scripture it was just funny because I we were talking about art history and he's like this is how you approach ancient sacred art because this is how they approached it he's like enter in with silence and then have a deep uh, knowledge of scripture and then know what the uh, fathers, the church fathers had to say about that scripture. And you will get um, a lot of keys into understanding that piece of piece of art. Uh, And I thought that was such an interesting approach because that's something that was really awakened in me when I spent that year in France, we didn't have internet. (laughs) I was living at that monastery studying philosophy and the silence that was there and the time spent like I want to say chewing on the scriptures internalizing them you know um that was something that really struck me and it's so helpful and weirdly helpful in understanding ancient Christian art I mean through to I'd say some of the modern stuff is a little more I actually I'm giving a talk for the patrons of the Vatican Museum's on the contemporary section um, of the Vatican Museums. So some of that is a bit different. You can't quite approach it that way because that's not how the artists were approaching it. Um, But for the artists who were, so from the very early Christian period through the Renaissance and Baroque, um, you you still see that. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting approach. 
do you, do you see um, either for Vadis and your work, you know, kind of digitizing some of these sacred spaces? Do you have plans to go beyond Europe, to go to Africa, Latin America, Asia, other places where the faith, maybe not as, you know, sure. maybe different, you know, levels of ancientness, I guess, but is that in the kind of roadmap for you? Yeah, I guess the farthest field that I've gone has been Jerusalem. Um, I basically right now, so the Benedict the Sixteenth Institute is kind of acts as a patron for me. So they uh, find donors and also worthy projects, and then direct me to to those um, things. And so. Our most recent project was, again, the California Missions. Um, so I would have to see if the interest is there and if the funding is there. So that's obviously... And there's there's so much to do just in Europe alone, but I'm also thinking of the Eastern rites of the church in particular, right? That, that oh perspective. Goodness, yes. And then so, so beautiful. beautiful. And then other places that may be in the new world, but less known from that kind of standpoint, right? right. right? Some, and particularly some of the Marian sites in in south america and 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 even mexico etc so cusco mm -hmm. has a lot um yeah i was thinking about cusco peru i've never been but one of my colleagues at yale did some of her research there and so she was coming back and telling me a lot about about the sacred sites there really incredible even the yeah. coptic stuff in east africa right where some of them some of those spaces claim mm -hmm. to house you know the the ark of the covenant and you know pieces of noah's ark and stuff like that who knows if it's real but they're just fascinating places that most most westerners don't get to see that often that could also be a pathway oh, to the faith and i you mentioned the byzantine the, you know the east and some of the byzantine churches and that's again when you see the that those domes um, and a lot of the domes, like Hagia Sophia, for example, but some of the, the domes in the, the Eastern churches, you'll see a whole row of windows right at the base. And so it gives you this impression that, again, that's the dome of the cosmos of the heavens hovering over this space where heaven and earth are meeting on the altar. It's just, I, I really love, I love what the Byzantine uh, East does with mosaic. We did that a lot in the West. I, so I did do... do um, Ravenna, some of the churches in Ravenna, there's sixth century uh, mosaics. A couple of the places are UNESCO World Heritage Sites. They're absolutely amazing, but they're very Byzantine yeah. style. Um, anyway, I love that style. I think it's amazing what they what what they do with uh, light. There's an interesting church in oh, I'm gonna forget now. Hold on, it's Posios Luca, so uh, Saint Luke. It's in Greece, and. Um, you see, as you enter in, again, we were talking about liminal spaces. This is in the narthex. So this is, your eyes are just adjusting from daylight to mosaics and candlelight. And you're in a darker space because the narthex is a lower ceiling than the main church and uh, a smaller space. Not as much light is getting in. But you see a mosaic of Christ and he's, it's, um, it's the harrowing of hell. So he's stepping up, you know, down and the doors of hell are burst open and uh, Satan is tied up and he's grabbing Adam and Eve by the hands to, to pull them out of their tombs. And um, the interesting thing about that particular mosaic is that the, the play of light, that Christ is completely in this gold mosaic and all these tiny little gold 
pieces, the tesserae of the mosaic, they're set at different angles in the wall so that when you look at them, it looks like they're glittering the way the light from the lamps hits them. And Christ is the same color. His robe is the same color as the background. And he steps instead of, so typically in these images, you'll see him stepping right down on the gates of hell. So um, he's grabbing Adam and Eve by the hand and he's stepping on the gates of hell and Satan is, un, is underneath mm. the gates of hell. Um, in this particular image, the artist changed it so that he's stepping onto the darkness. Wow. And I think that's so powerful because it's the light of the world and the darkness has not and will yeah, not, has not overtaken it. it. That reminds me, I forget if it's the Church of the mm-hmm. Transfiguration on Mount Tabor in Israel or if it's the, um, if it's the church that's um, at Gethsemane, but there's one that has like no windows, there's no sunlight. Do you remember which one this one is? So Gethsemane has um, these, it's, they're, they're windows that are, um, I believe it's amber, I'm trying to think. Basically, you can't really see through them, and it creates this yeah. dark atmosphere. Yeah, I yeah. was there. I just I lost track of who saw so many different holy sites. It was crazy, but um, but that was a particularly impactful one. But yeah, but for me, on in Israel, just nothing beat that experience of uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was like, wow, this is kind of like Ground Zero. You know what I mean? It's it was just yes. it was so uh, <laughs> so so amazing. That place is amazing. That so the Church um, of All Nations over at Gethsemane. I remember crying mm. there and there was a little boy who ran up to me and gave me a tissue and then scampered oh, off. That's sweet. It was that's very sweet. sweet. <laughs> it was so moving. Um, and I, I actually was there studying. Oh, cool. I, was, I wasn't I was with like a, we had a Jewish archaeologist who was our professor. I was living at uh, Hebrew U. Um, it was like a summer program where you lived there for, you know, the summer and, and whatnot. So it was a serious study program. And so I was weeping in the middle. Is of there it. a place, Amy, you haven't studied? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, but I mean, it just, anyway, well, I was going to say yeah. the funny thing about that little kid is as long as other people saw him, cause you never know, it could have been, you know, a little uh, angelic messenger or something <laughs> right. bringing you a tissue. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Amy, sadly, we've got a we've got a part. You've got uh, obviously lots of things to do, and um, and so. But before we get to our final section, called "Wait What," I did want to give the audience an opportunity to follow your work. Obviously, at Vadis, but maybe with the Benedict the Sixteenth Institute or whatever else you want to talk about. How do people stay in touch with you and know what you're up to um, in general? And we'll add this information to the show notes. Sure, sure. So my website is vadisvr.com v-a-d-i-s-v-r.com v-a-d-i-s-v-r.com and then my uh, to contact me it's just amy at vadisvr.com beautiful <laughs> so that's that's awesome well look i i um i definitely my prayer is for the continued prosperity of everything you're doing but especially around this idea of ever ancient ever new i love that i think we need a lot more emphasis on that and I think that, you know, the greatest teacher and the greatest evangelist might very well be the past, but it just may not be for the people that are there, <laughs> you know, maybe for someone else. And I think we could use that. So um, obviously my best uh, wishes and most hopeful prayers for the success of everything that you're doing. Thank you so much for you as well. Awesome. You ready to play Wait What, Amy? Yes. All right, let's do it. Do you want a softball first? Or you want to go right to the hard questions? 
right to the hard ones. Okay, no, there's, they're, they're all easy, I think. We'll see, we'll see. I, 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 um, let's see, we'll start with a fill-in-the-blank question, okay? Okay. All right, so fill-in-the-blank question. Since its founding in 1701, Yale, one of your alma maters, your many alma maters, since 1701, Yale has produced a bunch of very notable people, right? Nobel laureates and field medalists and countless other alumni, including five U.S. presidents, 19 U.S. Supreme Court justices, a bunch of heads of state, etc. Now, what many people don't know, however, is that among its notables was a man named Thomas Riggs, class of 1910. He was a campus poet. He was a polyglot musician, a World War I veteran, a world traveler. He penned the class song for his graduating class and was even roommates with the world-famous composer and songwriter Cole Porter. So, Amy, Thomas Riggs was a real rock star. And as impressive as all these characteristics are, they're not the reason why Thomas is notable in Yale's history. Thomas Riggs is notable in Yale's history because he went on to become Yale's first ever blank. Am I allowed to use my cell phone? (laughs) No, no, you cannot. This is terrible. My alma mater. It's okay. It's a pretty obscure, pretty obscure. (laughs) I give up. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I'll give you the answer then. Okay. So he went on to become the very first Catholic chaplain of Yale. So Father Thomas, Father Thomas Riggs, he was a class of 1910. He was the first Catholic chaplain at Yale after leaving Yale. And he went on to a foreign language specialist position. He got assigned to military intelligence in Paris and yada, yada. And then he came back. He was ordained to the priesthood in 1922. And after encouragement from people at Cambridge and Oxford, he took up residency at Yale and became their first Catholic chaplain. So there you go. Oh, that's amazing. I'm I just should blown. know that. I was married at the, the college chapel there. Well, his picture is supposed to be right there. I've never been oh, on the man. campus, so oh, I have, no, you have no I such excuse. <laughs> I have you no did. excuse. Well, as I always say, humility through humiliation. So here we go. All right. All right. Question, question number two, Amy. Ready? Mm-hmm. Which of these is false about the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City? Which of these is false about that structure? Is it A, despite its ancient site, I'm sorry, despite the ancient site of the apparition, the present basilica's construction is very modern and actually got started in 1964 and finished two short years later in 1966? Or is it B, the basilica contains an image of the Virgin Mary accompanied by text in braille so that the visually impaired can touch and read it? Or is it C, Prior to colonization by the Spanish, on the hill of Tepeyac, where the basilica was built, the Aztecs worshipped a female goddess named Tanansin, whose name means our mother in Nahuatl. Which of those is false? Is it built in 1964, completed in 66, contains an image in Braille, or built on a city called Tanansin that means our mother in Nahuatl? Which is false? Um... The last one? C, prior to colonization yeah. by the Spanish on the hill. Nope, that actually is true. That's they, true? I they, was going to say maybe it was a hill nearby, but not that exact one. It was actually oh, on Tepeyac, the hill of Tepeyac. Uh-huh. There was, uh, Tanansin was uh, one of the female goddesses of the Aztecs, and her name does mean our mother in Nahuatl. A little bit of uh, divine foreshadowing, perhaps. Who knows? The correct answer is A, 
Um, it is a, a modern structure, but it actually was built a decade later. Started in 1974 and was finished in 1976. So interesting. I knew it was newer. That's why I didn't choose. That. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It definitely is new, but it's not. It, it's actually a little newer than I gave it credit to. Okay. Got it. All right. So this is your moment of redemption, Amy. So because there's always <laughs> there's always a free will question. And there's always a time machine question. And so this is what the last question is. Ready? You okay. are able to travel into the future to Washington, okay. D.C. in the year 2027. Perhaps not as exotic a time or location as you anticipated. But nevertheless, you quickly discern the reason why you're there. You are an expert witness in a congressional hearing setting a new system of rules and protocols for the metaverse. Advances, <laughs> advances in technology, increased mobile computing power, and a lot of venture capital have created the reality of this utopian digital landscape where folks can freely come in and out. And mm -hmm. thanks to new headsets um, that have reached global mass adoption, um, you, now that's a reality, right? So you have a critical chance to weigh in on the opportunities and dangers of the metaverse. In your testimony, Amy, you're asked to suggest one cardinal rule that the government simply must weave into the very fabric of the metaverse before legislation is finalized. Amy, what rule, if any, do you suggest? Hmm. Well, the metaverse, <laughs> that is a scary idea. I think that technology, my rule would be something along the lines of technology is a tool and a vehicle for our use, but it shouldn't to the extent that it, it distracts us from reality. See, we meet God in reality. God's the, the Yahweh, the essence of being itself. Um, and anything that keeps us at a superficial level uh, or distracts us from reality or, yeah, it is dangerous, I would say. <laughs> so I think that like the VR stuff. By the way, my tours you can see outside of a VR headset. You can just see them online. If you just want to use your tablet or your phone or your laptop computer, or whatever. So you could you, you could see them in different ways. You can also see them in VR headsets. Um, to the extent that they're tools for catechesis to move people through the beauty and truth of our faith, wonderful. Uh, to the extent that people get lost in an alternate reality and aren't in communion with others. If God is Trinity, meaning God is a communion of love, and so that's what we're called for to, to enter into and meant to enter into and called to, um, we're called to communion with other people. So I know I'm, this isn't really, I'm not giving a concise rule, but anything that would uh, prevent people from entering into real communion with others or distract them from actual reality, I think is problematic and should, is um, taking a, a very useful tool and placing it at a higher level than it really should mm. be at. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. So it could be, it could be a rule about time limits in the metaverse. It could be a rule about the kind of behaviors that you can engage in for a certain amount of a percentage of, I don't know, computing power dedicated to it or something, but it sounds like you would net out somewhere Maybe. though you could keep the guardrails up. Yeah, time limits or 
also uh, maybe age limits as well. Mm. I have a little niece and nephew, and I just thinking of growing up because when I was, I mean, I'm still relatively young, <laughs> but when I was very young, I don't remember using computers. We, you know, it wasn't a thing until I was like, it was still, you know. Anyway, it just wasn't part of the everyday. The internet wasn't part of the everyday. And so I think maybe an age limit and a time limit, potentially. Now, I think that that Although, could be interesting. The age limit in particular, too. And, not, and I don't mean 18. It could be like 25 or 30. You know what I mean? Let that brain harden a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> you know? True. You just don't, you don't want to rewire things. That, that we, we have such a difficult time anyway, just staying silent um, and entering into contemplation. I'm reading this book right now. Uh, it's by Ruth Burroughs. She's a Carmelite, um, alive today out in England. It's called The Essence of Prayer. And she said that, um, this is why I'm harping on the silence part and the need to not be like really distracted from reality. She said that Prayer is God's work in us. Like, we don't need to make some big effort. It's That's actually kind of puffed up to think that we even could, like, <laughs> it's God's work. So um, she said the only thing that we have to do, she's three things, I think, uh, from memory, I was just reading it. So we have to set a time that we, and, and stick to it. And before that time, um, of prayer where we're just silent with God whether anything happens or you don't feel anything you do feel anything whatever it doesn't matter God still it's his work in you um, she said you just have to calm your mind down that's the only work you have to do to get into it is either pray a decade of the rosary or do do whatever it takes to get to the point of um, quieting the mind and then let God do his work so I I think that that's something precious that we should make sure that we do. <laughs> that sounds like uh, very worthwhile advice. Absolutely. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show. Real privilege to have you and Godspeed on all of your endeavors and plans. Thank you so much. Reassured of my prayers for you and for your listeners as well. Awesome. And that means if you're listening to that little prayer and invocation, you need to subscribe to this show and share the show with friends and family, someone you love, someone you'd like to get closer to, someone who needs to hear that, whatever it is, subject, word of encouragement, etc. Share the show, help it to grow. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-USA.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.